Let's turn to John chapter 6. We are finishing John chapter 6 tonight. We're reading the last 11 verses. John 6, verse 60 to to 71. Last verses in John chapter 6. Um, if you're into like titles, it's a hard saying. That's the title of this sermon. Um, but let's read John chapter 6, verse 60 to 71. I'll read it. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Sad. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your, thank you for your word, Jesus. Your word are the words of life. Lord, we look for life tonight. Jesus, we look to you for filling and life and joy. We need you, God. And we we just say, have your way. You have all authority, Jesus. Would you speak to us? Convict us. Lead us in righteousness and truth and repentance. And above all, we just want to see Jesus and worship Jesus and know the love of Jesus more clearly. So speak now, Lord, as we just study your word together. Would you help each person in here, God, whatever is going on, just help them to sit at your feet now as we look at your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' mouth got him killed. Think about that. Jesus' mouth got him killed. If it wasn't for his mouth, he wouldn't have been killed. Um, And there were, honestly, many times when my mouth has gotten me into trouble, uh, However, I wasn't like Jesus when my mouth was getting me into trouble. Um, have you guys ever like said something and then you're like, as it's coming, it's leaving your mouth, you're just trying to like bring it back in like, no, I didn't mean, have you guys ever, maybe it's just me, maybe it's some of us. Um, Proverbs 18 verse 6 says, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. I just like that picture of little lips walking into a fight. Um, you guys, my mouth, I've gotten in so much trouble with my mouth. Since I was like literally able to speak, I remember, sad little story, when I was three years old and I heard the word hate for the first time, I was like, oh yeah, what a word. And I was like, who can I use this word on? Because I was three. And I was like, oh, my mom. And I was like, mom, I hate you. And then I didn't even really know what it meant. I said it like with a smile. 
And I just, I saw her like get really sad and I was like, dang it, like I didn't mean that. I just wanted to use the word. Um, and then I always do this and I still do this. If we're like playing basketball or just doing something dumb, I always say like, hey, if I make this shot, I'm buying everybody lunch. Like if I can make this miracle shot and multiple times it's happened and I've literally like spent money. I've taken Travis out to uh, lunch before because I was an idiot and my mouth just says things and gets me into trouble. Um, one more time. The other night I, we were at friend's house and I like spicy food and they had like jalapenos. They're like, hey, these are extra spicy. I'm like, no, they're not. And I'm just like piling on jalapenos. I'm like, started eating. I'm like, this isn't even spicy. You know how you say that? And then like, you know, 30 seconds later, like my face, everything sweating for like 20 minutes and everyone's just making fun of me. Like, you're such an idiot. You didn't have, you just didn't have to say it's not spicy, but now you look like an idiot because your mouth is just getting you into trouble. You look so dumb. And we've, I think we've all probably been there where our mouth is getting us into trouble. Now, Jesus' mouth got him killed. What Jesus said ended his life. Yet, unlike me, he's not a fool. He knew what he was saying, and yet his mouth still got him killed. Uh, In this particular conversation in John chapter 6, he just said to a huge crowd, like thousands of people, he said, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And everyone's like, Jesus, what are you saying? He's offending people. They, in verse 60, that's, look at verse 60. That's the first thing they say. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Jesus said many hard sayings. Uh, He often offended people. He would call like the leaders, hey, you're a whitewashed tomb. You're a hypocrite. He, would call, he called his local king, like the president. He's like, tell that fox. Like, he just called him a fox. I don't know if, what kind of insult that is, but I, I don't think it's a good thing. He said stuff like, hey, before Abraham was, I am, implying I'm God. And he said, if you want to follow me, listen, you have to come and die. Like, Jesus said a lot of hard things. And here's what's really important. If you want to follow Jesus... You do not have the right to just kind of pick and choose, okay, I like what Jesus said over here. I don't like what Jesus said here. And that was the problem with these disciples. They're like, I like you, Jesus. I like what you're saying. But this thing over here, this is kind of hard. And I want you to think about this. If every person in every culture kind of just picked what they liked about Jesus and then didn't take what they didn't like about Jesus, there wouldn't be any Jesus left. Like, here's a really classic example I've heard. Typical Californian, us, uh, maybe you're not from California, but, you know, American. Um, We don't really like what Jesus says about sex. Uh, We don't like what he says about its design and its context. Your your average Californian, I'm not even saying Christian, just your average person. They don't like that. But your average Californian loves what Jesus says about social justice and the poor and racial unity and harmony. They're like, yeah, I'm down with that. That's cool. I like that about Jesus. Let's say uh, you went to Saudi Arabia and you were to ask a typical Muslim, hey, what do you like uh, and what do you don't, don't like about Jesus? You know what's interesting? They love what Jesus says about sex and its design and its context. And they hate what he says about forgiveness and racial unity and justice. And if every culture just kind of said, yeah, we like this and we don't like this, there would not be Jesus left. Jesus has been offending people for 2,000 years, depending on no, no matter what culture you're from, no matter what you believe or don't believe, And we don't have the right to say, I like that, Jesus. This is hard. I don't really, I'm not going to accept that. That's a temptation of us. As we want to follow Jesus, it's really tempting for us to be like, I like this, Jesus. I don't really like this over here. And I'll be honest with you guys, as a teacher of the Bible, 
it's really easy for me to teach some truths, and I'm like, oh, people are going to love this. This is fun. And it's honestly really tempting for me to just, like, not teach some truths. Because who doesn't like amens and nods and laughter, right? But I, I don't personally enjoy standing up here saying something like, okay, nobody wants to hear this. And it's really tempting to just shy away from different things in God's word that are hard sayings. And you know what I love about Jesus? He wasn't afraid of people. He's like, I'm going to tell you truth. I love you enough to tell you truth. And he ended up dead because of it. Um, true love, you guys, is willing to speak truth in love and in grace. But I'm willing to like wound. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You get that? Like true love says, hey, I love you enough. I need to point this out. This is not okay. And that may wound us, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And then it says, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You want to know if someone's actually not your friend is if they're always just like flattering you and saying good things about you. A real friend is willing to like wound you. And as I was studying uh, and, and preparing this sermon, um, I want to be honest with you. The Holy Spirit, like clear as day, was convicting me of neglecting to teach a particular thing here on Friday nights. Um, it's honestly been something I've been avoiding forever. And people bring it up and like, hey, we, like maybe I have questions about this and I've talked to people individually, but I've honestly been neglecting uh, something that I really believe is beautiful and in the word of God and I just haven't done it. Um, and I felt the Holy Spirit like, hey, you need to like, you need, in this sermon about the hard sayings of Jesus and the word of God, I want you to spend a few minutes on this thing. Uh, so I'm gonna be honest and teach you something that I don't think is popular that I've honestly been fearful of. Um, and just trust it's the word of God. These aren't my ideas. Um, so I'm going to spend a few minutes about what does the Bible teach about gender and men and women in particular in the church. Um, and here's the thing. Our culture is talking about it. Uh, we've all grown up in different churches talking about it, teaching about it. Uh, if you go to college, your professors are for sure talking about it. And we all probably have our own opinions about men and women and the difference or not the difference and all of that. Um, and before I get into like what we all want to talk about, the specific questions, um, I want to lay the, a couple foundational scriptures for us. I'm going to read five scriptures, um, all of them from Genesis, and then we're going to get into the stuff that I don't want to talk about, but I believe that is in the word of God. So uh, scripture number one is in Genesis, and I'm actually going to read it from Mark 10 when Jesus is referring. He kind of summarizes it. Mark 10 verse 6 Jesus said this, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. It's really clear from Genesis, from day one, before anything went wrong, God made males and females. And I just have to say, there is such a thing as a male, and there is such a thing as a female. There is such a thing as manhood and womanhood. Masculinity and femininity are actually a thing that God came up with and made. That uh, seems pretty obvious, but in our culture, that's not obvious. And so that's a foundational truth. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Second uh, foundational truth is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And it says this, Then God said, Let us make man, meaning humanity, in our image, after our likeness. And this is important. Let them have dominion. This is really foundational. God made men and women together to have dominion over his creation. 
Notice that, verse chapter uh, Genesis 126, let them have dominion. So this is a foundational truth. Men and women are created in God's image to have, to share, to rule like the planet in some crazy way together. So men and women have dominion over God's creation together. Uh, now, Genesis 2 kind of, Genesis 1 is like a broad stroke, and then Genesis 2 digs deeper into how God made us. So uh, we're going to read a couple out of Genesis 2. So the third verse I'm going to read is Genesis 2, verse 7. And it says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, which is cool, because everything else he spoke, but he made the man with dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. I'm sorry, this is in my notes, and this has nothing to do with manhood and womanhood, Um, but this is awesome. We're the only things God made with with his hands, and uh, this is profound. What were we made of? Dust. Do you know what that means? That should humble us. Okay, remember where we came from. Dust. Yet, what did God do? He breathed life, his spirit into us. And that should give us dignity. And that's a really cool balance that I love. We were made from dust, humble, but we have the spirit of God in us. And that's awesome. Side note, unpause. Uh, Here's what I need us to notice. In this moment, God didn't actually make Adam and Eve at the same time. Do you know that? God actually made Adam first. We don't know how many days or hours, but he made man from the dust. And I'm going to read the next, uh, actually the next verse is coming. You know where a woman comes from in a second. But the next verse I'm going to read uh, is Genesis 2, 18. And, and Adam's out there doing things. And this is what God says. It is not good that the man should be alone. And that's 100% an amen. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, this is really, really profound and beautiful. We're going to notice two words right there. The word helper and the word fit. Okay, the Hebrew word for helper is ezer. I don't know how you say that in Hebrew, but ezer. Um, And the definition of that is support, strength, and God is later refers to himself as Israel's ezer. So ezer is rad. God's like, yeah, it's like what I am. That's what a woman is, support and strength. And then it says a helper fit. That word fit is neged, Do you know what that word means? This is so profound, you guys. It means on the other side, that which is opposite, that which corresponds. That's what the word means, okay? That which is opposite, that which corresponds. So women and men are made to fit together. Like a right hand and a left hand, they're not the same, right? Like it's not the same, but they fit and work really, really well together. They were designed to go together. Right hand, left hand. Right hand was made first, left hand was made from the rib, but it's similar and different, and that's really important. Men and women are both equally made in God's image, both have dignity, and yet they're different, opposite. They fit one another really well, but they are not the same. And then the fifth truth from Genesis 2.21, this is what we refer to. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place. The thing to notice here is where was woman made from? His side, meaning his equal, right? She wasn't made from his foot because he's like over her and he, like less than, and she wasn't made from his head like he's, she's over him. She's made from his side as his equal, which is one of many ways we know men and women are created equally with dignity in the image of God. So men and women, to be clear, are both made in God's image. 
they're equal in worth and in personhood and dignity, and yet they are different. They fit together. These are foundational scriptures from Genesis. This is before sin happened, before the fall, before anything bad happened. Um, and what we really want to know, and, and uh, I'll just say this as we get into the weeds for a second, um, about some hard sayings to our culture, maybe to you. I can't dig into every single detail, but I love this conversation and I would love to talk and follow up with any bit of you, any, any one of you for hours. That's literally like my favorite thing to do is talk about this stuff. So come ask me questions um, if you have them. So those are our foundational scriptures. And from those scriptures and other scriptures, I wanna affirm something the Bible teaches and it's referred to as headship, specifically male headship. Now, I didn't make that up. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. It says this, I want you to understand, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, that the head of every man, men have heads, is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I'm going to read that one more time. I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Um, Okay, that word headship, we tend to think like that's a bad word, and I get it. I get why we do, specifically because it's been abused for sure. Um, But I want you to notice that every being in the universe has a head, not just women, everyone. Uh, Jesus has a head. Did you know that? Jesus submits to his father. And men submit to Jesus and women, particularly in this verse, wives to their husbands. And so headship is not a bad thing. It's a good thing that God knows that every human being, we need like accountability and we need to like not be our own gods. Like we need to be submitted. That's a really good thing. So everyone has a head except for God the Father. And that's important. And listen, Jesus in this verse is an example for women in a really beautiful way. Jesus is equal to God the Father. He's God. He is God. He's equal. And yet, he like, we know, he lays down, he he like humbles himself and he submits to his Father. Like that's that radical thing. He's equal, yet he submits. And that's a beautiful thing, women. Um, This idea of headship is this verse and many others is where we get the idea that like, yeah, men, you're like to lead your family. Like you're the leader of your wife. And it's not that men are the head of women in general, but specifically uh, husbands are the head of their wives. They're to lead their families well. And this idea, big picture of headship actually explains really well all the hard verses that are not popular. Uh, One example is the classic 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Um, The next verse, I don't know if you've ever read the next verse, is for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And what Paul's doing is he's connecting this idea of headship back to Genesis, back to God's original design before there's anything wrong with the universe. That's just how God made things. He made Adam first to be the head, and then he made Eve is equal to submit to him. And that's why in a church, he doesn't permit women to teach or exercise authority over a man. So the same way that a husband leads his family, though his wife is his equal, men are to lead the church in the same way that a family happens. That's just like a little picture of the church, the family of God. Um, 
Now, I want to be really clear. We don't get this idea of headship from just like 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy. Um, It's actually modeled from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and it's in every book of the Bible. And I just want to really briefly uh, talk about that because some people would want to just argue against a couple of verses in the New Testament to say this doesn't exist. And I want you to see this is not like a couple random bad moments Paul had. Like this is something God has been doing. So we've seen it in Genesis. Um, We also see it, remember when Adam and Eve sin? And what happens? God confronts, who does he confront? He confronts Adam. He's like, Adam, where are you? What are you doing? And you know what's really interesting? The commandment to not eat from the tree, Eve never heard that commandment. That was told to Adam before Eve was made. And it was Adam's job to lead his family. And who really failed in that scenario was Adam. Adam was like, like many men, being just a cheeseball, lazy husband, not there, not leading. As his wife is talking to Satan, Adam's like, I don't know what's going on. Like, yeah, so God's like, Adam, what are you doing? So we see that act, even though Eve was the first one to eat and Eve was deceived, God holds Adam accountable. So we see it there in Genesis. Um, We see it in the priestly system in the Old Testament when God instituted priests. Um, Not because men are better, but God just ordained that men had to be priests. Um, we see in the New Testament, God specifically, Jesus, or uh, appointed 12 apostles who were men. Now, I'll get to the caveats here. Women are equal and women have a beautiful place in scripture and in the ministry of Jesus. But I'm just pointing out this idea that in the priestly system, there were heads and they were men. In the New Testament apostles, there were heads and they were men. And then we see in all the verses where uh, like, you know, Ephesians, the classic wedding verses, like husbands, you are to lead your wife and your family. And then in the church verses, we have many, many verses where men are called to be the pastor, elder uh, in the church, to be like the husbands, the dads, that idea in the church. And every time uh, the qualification for an elder or pastor, it's specifically addressed to men. And one of the qualifications is you need to be a one-woman man, which is like two reasons right off the bat. Like, hey, you need to be a man who's only about one woman, your wife. And if you're not, you're not qualified to be a pastor. That's very clearly two men. Um, also, then we have the other verses where Paul says things like, hey, women aren't to be leading in that way. They're not to be teaching in that way. Now, those are some of the like broad scope of things that we see. I, I could go on. I just wanted to give you like a broad scope and some specifics. Now, I want to clarify something. I want to again clarify that men and women are equal in the family of God. Men are no better and no more gifted and no more actually anything than women. They are simply assigned a role, a job, an office of headship in their homes and the church. Not because they're better. Often they are not better. Uh, but that is simply God's assignment to uh, men. Um, men and women still are to have dominion together in their home and in the church. Yet in some way, men are the heads. Um, again, I want to clarify, there is literally no difference in ability between men and women, in gifting between men and women, in leadership between men and women in terms of gifting. There's simply a difference in assignment. Like men do this, women do this. Uh, women should be teaching and preaching and leading and having every spiritual gift and functioning in the church. Equal, the very same as men. Yet there's a unique role for a few men. I'm not an elder. A few men to lead the church and then the rest of the church submits joyfully to them and men and women joyfully submit to them. Um, 
Now, for sure want to acknowledge, this is not agreed on. This is not popular. It's not agreed on. I'm sure many of your professors and books and pastors say this is not a thing. Um, many of you probably don't agree either. And I'm not saying if you don't agree with this teaching that I see from the beginning to the end of the Bible, you're not a Christian at all. I'm not saying that. Um, but I am saying this is something that is really, really clear, actually, in Scripture and really, really beautiful, actually, in Scripture. And it's actually something that the devil and the world has been trying to twist and distort from the beginning. And I just want to say, there's, what if there is beauty in the difference between men and women and how God made them to function? Um, I believe this is taught clearly and explicitly and implicitly. Um, and if you disagree, I just want to say this. Why do you disagree? And is it because of the Bible? I simply want to ask you, you need, you, you need scripture behind what you believe. You need the truth, the hard truth of God behind what you believe. Not a person, not a PhD, not a book. You need the word of God behind you. And I would love to have that conversation with you with all of my heart. I love, I literally, I love this conversation. I promise I won't be a jerk. I promise. Um, I, the last thing I want to say is these ideas aren't my ideas. In fact, uh, when I was in college, you guys, I was like the most liberal human in the universe. And it was simply reading the Bible that has changed why I believe what I believe. I grew up and my mom had the title of pastor. Um, my mom and I, this is not uh, that conversation does get heated with my mom. Um, she does not agree with me, obviously. Um, and I, don't, I didn't choose this because I think it's popular or because I think it's fun or because I enjoy telling women what they can and can't do or what I see God saying they can and can't do. I just simply see this as the truth. God is taught in his word. And to women, I want to specifically say, I really believe there's flourishing, like beautiful, joyful, flourishing for you. Like more ministry available to you than you could ever imagine in God's good design. And I want to say as a testimony, there are, act, there are women in the universe who believe this and love this. That's a thing. I know that maybe you haven't interacted with them. I'll just say my wife is one. And my wife uh, didn't believe this because I like taught her this. Uh, and, and as we have functioned in this way, um, we have learned like, wow, this is so good. This is actually good. This isn't just like a bummer thing we have to believe, like hell, like I wish the world's there. Like this is actually a good thing. It is a really good thing God has done. And the more men joyfully, sacrificially lead like Jesus and lay their lives down, and the more women joyfully are like, how can I fit and compliment and help that? Like beauty and amazing things happen. Um, so I just want to say there is beauty there, and there are actually women I know. Um, you could talk to any woman on staff here who, uh, who works here. They, they'll be able to testify, yeah, there's, there's too much ministry for me to do here. Um, now, I want to connect this, obviously, back to our text for tonight. Um, I bring this up, number one, because I really felt the Holy Spirit say, you just need to teach this. You need to be honest with this hard saying. Number two, that hard saying, what we just heard, like, okay, this is not easy to hear. Um, it helps us viscerally feel what these disciples felt. Like these disciples were like, I, I want to be into Jesus, but I don't like, this isn't easy what you're saying. This isn't easy for me to live out. And so look at verse six, we're going to look at verses 61 and 62. We're going to see Jesus' reaction to them. I'll read those again. Verse 61 and 62. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, 
he's grumbling a little, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Okay, Jesus' response is awesome, like in the literal sense. He says, hey, are you offended at this? And I like these like gentle, are you offended? Then he says, do you remember where I came from? Do you remember who I am? Like, like, do you remember, like, like, what if you were to see me go back and sit next to God the Father on a throne? And this, that picture is essential when we're offended at something Jesus says. When we're like, I don't like that, Jesus is like, hey, remember who you're listening to. Remember where I'm from. Remember that I am right now seated next to the Father and all of heaven is going nuts about my glory and my goodness and my power and my love. Remember that. Remember when we read this book, this book didn't come from human beings only. It came from like the guy who was on his throne. His spirit came and gave us the word of God. Remember where this book is from. The last thing I'm gonna say about this issue the short term of it is complementarianism. It's a long term of the difference between how men and women complement each other. Uh, you, she, was, she was telling me, I remember uh, wrestling through this. I was just out of college. She was telling me when I heard about this and I hated it and I didn't like it, but I was like, okay, I want to be honest with God. And so I was reading the Bible and I was reading books and I was reading articles and I was just trying to read it, trying to read it. And she said to me, she's like, I, I honestly felt this conviction of the Holy Spirit ask me this question. Am I allowed to tell you no? That's what she said to me. She said, Jesus and the Holy Spirit gave her that sense, that conviction. Am I allowed to tell you no? And she said, I didn't need to read more stuff. I just knew. I knew what I wanted and I knew that I didn't want Jesus to tell me I couldn't do something. And this is the truth for men and women and everyone. Jesus is Lord. Jesus tells us all kinds of stuff we can't do. Not just about gender, but about how we use our bodies and our money and how we treat people and our emotions and anger and forgiveness and, the gen- and generosity and the poor. Uh, it's been said, Jesus, there's not one square inch of the universe to which Jesus doesn't say mine. Like Jesus is Lord. He's allowed to say whatever he wants because he's Jesus and he is Lord. And listen, Jesus tells those he loves no all the time for our own good. Most of the time, it's because we want to go sin. But even when we want to do good things, and I just want to say this. Uh, I know I said I'd be done, but women, if there's some of you in here, like, I feel called to ministry. I, first of all, I'd be like, yes and amen. We need amen. Awesome. Um, but maybe you'd be like, I feel called to like, be a senior pastor in a church. Um, I would simply humbly be like, I don't see that being a thing in the, in the New Testament or the Old Testament. I don't see that. Um, I don't think so, but I do think there's more joy for you somewhere else. And, and maybe Jesus is saying no and love for you because there's more flourishing in a different way. And I want us to remember this story. You guys remember David, a man after God's own heart. He did all this stuff for the Lord. He like won the, had the tabernacle, all these battles. And one day he had this dream in his heart. He's like, do you know what? I'm living in a mansion and God's tabernacle or his uh, ark is in like a tent. He's like, I'm gonna build a house for the Lord. I'm gonna build a temple. Why would the Lord not want me to build him a temple? And he went and he asked uh, Nathan the prophet. Nathan's like, oh yeah, dude, that's awesome. Go for it. And then the night the uh, the Lord told Nathan, hey, you need to go tell David no. 
He's not the one to build me my temple. And uh, it wasn't because there's anything wrong with David. It just wasn't for him. He said there's too much blood on his hands, but he said, that's your son's job. That's not your job. And there are even times when we have a good desire. Like, I want to go, I don't know, be a missionary over here. Lord, I want to go do this thing over here. Like, for your glory, where Jesus will say, do you know what? That's not for you. Or not in that way. And, and we just have to be willing to hear him say, no, that's not for you. And um, so then Jesus kind of digs a little deeper to these guys in his response. So he's like, hey, remember I'm Lord. And then in verse 63, he gets even deeper to why they're having a hard time. We're going to read verses 63 to 65. He says this, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. No one will accept all Jesus has to say without the spirit giving them life and understanding and a new heart and a heart that says, Jesus, I'll believe you whatever you say. And what he's saying is, listen, everyone can find something they like about Jesus. The most crazy atheists can find something they like. That's called the flesh. Who, who doesn't want Jesus to say, oh, you can get me out of hell? I'm down for sure. I'm down. Yeah, I want out of hell. You'll, you'll, you'll feed me. You'll take care of me. I'm for sure down. That sounds good to my flesh. But there comes a moment when Jesus will confront our flesh and our fleshly desires are not able to give us life and to obey Jesus. The day is coming, if it hasn't, it's probably come a lot of times for us when Jesus will challenge our flesh and they'll say, no, you can't do that. And listen, your response will reveal if you are being led by your spirit, by the Holy Spirit or by your flesh. Your response will reveal, okay, Jesus, I don't like this, but is that like just my flesh that all Christians have? Or, am I, or is this like, do you know, that's hard, but I want to be led by the Spirit. Now, I want to say two things. Um, Non-Christians only have flesh, right? So when Jesus confronts them, there's no hope for them. They need the Holy Spirit to give them new life and a new heart. Christians have flesh and the Spirit. There's this battle going on, Romans 7, Galatians 6. Like, that's all of us every day trying to follow Jesus. At the same time, we're like, fighting temptation and fighting and it's hard, right? So when Jesus says to a Christian, hey, here's something I want you to listen and obey, there's this war going on in us, the flesh and the spirit. And it's evidence that you are born again and you're filled with the spirit when you hear something difficult and you don't like it and you're saying, all right, I'm willing to trust you, Holy Spirit. That sounds like the voice of Jesus. And um, this is why Jesus later says in John, hey, my sheep know me and they hear my voice. Do you know what he's saying? I love this. Even if you haven't been taught good theology, you'll hear something and be like, I just doesn't sound like Jesus' voice. You may not even know why, but you just like know the voice of your shepherd. And then you'll hear something over here like, that sounds crazy, but like, I trust it. That sounds like my shepherd. There's just something about sheep. They're not smart, but they know what their shepherd's voice sounds like. Jesus says, that's like us. And when you're mine and the Spirit's giving you a heart that loves me, when you hear truth, there's just something in you like, yeah, that's Jesus. And then there's something like, no, nah, that's not Jesus. That's like my flesh or that's, that doesn't sound right. And so Jesus is saying in these verses to listen to me, to listen to the hard things you need, my Spirit. 
And then verse 66, this is uh, kind of like the climax of this chapter in the story, says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And honestly, I, that, I say that like through a lot of pain because some of my very, very best friends have walked away from Jesus. Friends that I've prayed with and served Jesus with for hours. Um, and I've seen them walk away from Jesus. There's such a thing for people to walk with Jesus for a time. And to be a disciple, like this verse calls them disciples. And then Jesus begins to confront flesh and they will choose to walk away from Jesus. That, that happened to Jesus. Like he just fed 20,000 people and this chapter ends with 12 people. Like that's why Jesus said the road's really narrow and those who find it are few. Many, many people like a lot of stuff about Jesus, yet the day comes when many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. And just even, I wish someone told me this when I was in college, just prepare your heart for that moment. That's why like we put our hope in Jesus and know like, man, people like, who knows what's gonna happen. I want, and I want to walk with Jesus enough that I don't fall away. That's why some of those gnarly verses in the New Testament are like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, like this is a big deal because many people fall away and walk away from Jesus. And um, that's why we need to be born again and not just a disciple. That's why like we need the spirit in us and not just like, okay, yeah, I'm trying to follow Jesus with my own effort. Like we need the spirit of God to fill us up and help us even when Jesus confronts us and challenges us and says, no, you can't do this and you can't do that. Um, So many of these disciples walked away. And then verses 67 to 69, Jesus then turns and has a conversation with his 12. And it says this, well, I'll read these uh, 67 to 69. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And just pause and imagine that moment right? Like crowds and like the crowds are like, dude, this guy's crazy. And they walk away and it's just a few of you left. And Jesus looks at you and makes eye contact with you and says, do you want to go away as well? In verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And do you know I love this? Peter is such an idiot, but he gets it here. You're just like, yes, Peter, finally you get it. And that's encouraging because I am really weak and do foolish things all the time, just like Peter, but there's just something about, I just want to stick with Jesus. Man, I've blown it. I've done so many stupid things like Peter. I've said so many stupid things. Peter goes on to do all kinds of stupid things, but he gets it. Where else would I go? Where else would I go? My own mind, my own ideas, like who else is gonna save me from my sins? Who else is gonna lead me and teach me truth? Like my culture, like what's popular right now, Peter gets it. Where else would I go? Jesus, you have the words of life. And he says, and we believe, we believe that your spirit's done something in us. Where else would we go? And, And the last thing, I want us to notice in these verses is he says, you have the words of eternal life. Um, I just want us to remember that even when this book is challenging, it's, it leads us to life. Like Jesus and his words are the way to life 
and joy and flourishing. And even when this book is like a sword that's just cutting us and exposing our sin and like pointing out our idols, the Holy Spirit is using this book to like cut away disease that we would have life. Like a good surgeon, he's like, I'm gonna cut you and this is gonna be painful, but I want you to have life. And true freedom and life are found in God's words. Jesus has the words of life. And listen, true freedom is not freedom from this book. It's not. The Bible actually says that's called slavery. True freedom is found in this book. Freedom to love and do the right thing that's going to lead me to joy, that's freedom. You maybe have heard this, like a little fish in like a little picture, a little goldfish in a little bowl. Um, Freedom is not found for that fish outside of that bowl. That's not freedom. He was designed to like breathe water and like push against water. And if he looks at birds and he's like, man, I'm so jealous. They're so free. And he jumps out of his bowl. He's dead. He's dead. There's no life for him out there. You need to be in water, little fish. Listen, son and daughter of God, life is found here for you. You were created and designed to live the way that this book says this, Jesus, have the words of life. Like there's more joy to enjoy all of the God's good gifts according to his word. There's actually more joy there. And I want to close with this, you guys. Um, not only does Jesus and his word speak life, like not only does this like lead us to life, you guys, Jesus himself is life. Because this is why this is important. Has anybody here not uh, disobeyed this book? Is anybody like, oh, no, I got it. Yeah, I've been experiencing life. I do it. Has anybody here uh, disagreed with Jesus from time to time? I will say yes. Have any of us chosen our flesh over Jesus ever? Yes. And you guys, if all Jesus came to do was teach us truth and then left, we would literally be damned. Jesus came to do more than speak. He came to save you guys. Jesus came to save people like you and me who have failed to obey the things in this book. If all Jesus came to do was like, hey, listen, get your act together. Here's the the 10 rules and like I'm out of here. We would all not be in a good situation. But Jesus said, look at them. They're foolish. They're going their own way. They need a savior. All go down there. All obey this book perfectly. All carry it. Does this book ever feel like weight to you? Like I can't do it. It's too much. It's too heavy. Jesus like, I'll carry the weight. I'll fulfill everything in here. And I will die on the cross for all of their sins that they could come to me and have life. If Don't think this book is like, do it and you'll have life. This book first and foremost points you to Jesus, who's the only one who has life in him. And so we need to come to him, confess all of our failures, all the times we've went with our flesh, all the times we thought we were smarter, and say, Jesus, I repent. Thank you that you have taken my place on the cross that I could have life in you. Christianity, you guys, please, we're so just default mode, is not get it right. Do it right. Think the right thing. Christianity is not a theology test. Thank you, Jesus. Because even if you pass the theology test, you're a wicked sinner and you'd be damned anyways. We, Christianity is news that God came to save you because you didn't do a great job at obeying all of his rules and commandments that would have led to life if we ever obeyed them. And here's the thing. 
we have to be saved and filled with the Spirit, and then this book no longer becomes like this weighty bummer, what the heck. This book is just the way we live to life. This book is only ever enjoyed after you've come to Jesus and know that he's done all this requires for you. Because you're like, man, it actually is better to do this. And it's actually not better to go this way. And if you haven't come to Jesus, this is like the most miserable book in the universe. Probably all you do is read it and you're like, I hate myself. I don't do any of this stuff. You need to come to Jesus and know he's died for your failures. Be filled with the spirit and then this book will become beautiful to you. And so... Um, I'm going I'm to read our last two verses, and then we're going to worship together. The last two verses are so sad. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Imagine him saying that to the 12 of them. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Um, this chapter ends so, like, anticlimatically and just miserable, because John, the writer, is reminding us, hey, not all who claim to walk with Jesus are his. And Judas is a reminder that not all who, like, on the outside look like they're doing it, are not, they're not actually his. Judas is a reminder that those who walk with Jesus may actually really just be about their own desires. He's a reminder that the time does come when Jesus and his words are just too much, and we don't want anything to do with it. We'd rather just go our own way. Judas is this sad, sobering reminder to, for us to examine ourselves and be like, man, am I like these disciples? Am I like Judas? Or am I like Peter saying, Jesus, whatever you say, where else would I go? Say whatever, Jesus. Where else would I go? Where else is life? And I, in love, want to close with this question that Jesus asked his disciples to you. What about you? Do you take offense at the words of God? What will you do with Jesus and his words? Do you believe them and accept the truth that, man, man, I rebelled, I've done a bad job, but Jesus has given me life? And, and do you accept, Jesus, whatever you say, whatever, I, I'll go with you. Jesus, all of what I have, you can speak to me. You can, you can reveal your truth to me. And I just want to encourage us, let's be like Peter tonight as we, as we go to worship and just say, Jesus, have your way. Where else would I go? If you, uh, the Spirit has convicted you about a way that you have been off, here's what we do with that. We don't sit in uh, condemnation with the enemy. We like go to Jesus and his cross and we take communion and remember he loves you in spite of all of your failure, in spite of all your rebellion, all of those moments where you knew the right way to life and you said, I want this instead. That is why Jesus came. And together, let's come to Jesus and let's fall at his feet and let's confess and repent and say, Jesus, I trust you. You alone are the way to life and have the words of life. And then let's worship him. So Jesus, please right now pour out your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you silence anything that was said or in our minds or hearts that is not of you, that is not of your word, that is not true. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You lead us in truth and to the truth. And I just pray, Spirit, that right now you would graciously lead us to Jesus, to our good shepherd, to life. You would graciously lead us to repent in any way that we've been off, that we would experience life. We'd be willing to confess our sins, Lord, to a prayer team or to, some, to someone sitting around us, that we would be healed, Lord. 
If some of us are in just what feels like addiction or continual sin, would we, even if we've done this so many times, would we confess to a brother or sister, say, I want to be free, I want to be healed? And Holy Spirit, would you just close this time helping us together look to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, to Jesus who is life itself. Fix our eyes on you now, Jesus, as we worship you.